Welcome, everybody, and welcome for those that are watching online. We want to thank you for joining us at our Bible study here, Journey Through the Bible. We're going to be in uh, 2 Timothy. We're going to finish 2 Timothy tonight, chapters 3 and 4. Super excited about all that God's doing. We had a great time last week with the Harvest Fair and had just a, a ton of kids, ton of candy, and, and a, lot of, a lot of guests. We just want to worship God this evening as we take a look at 2 Timothy and see these words that Paul has for his son in the faith. So let's pray. God, I thank you for the, the privilege of being in this place and to study your word. Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the peace of Israel even now. And, and Lord, as uh, the army is surrounding Gaza City, and, and I haven't got the update recently, but Lord, I know that they are going in and clearing up tunnels and, and such. I pray for protection for the soldiers and for the people. For the people and the citizens of Gaza, and also the citizens of Israel. Lord, I pray against the demonic forces of Hamas that is behind them, and Hezbollah. Lord, we pray that you would bind these evil ones, that you would stop the attacks, and that you would bring peace. Lord, we know that peace won't happen until you, the peacemaker, comes. So come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Maranatha. Tonight we just want to worship you and spend some time before your throne. We want to be able to honor you with our voices and our lives. Lord, help us to set aside the cares of the day. Be with those that are sick and, and can't come out. We ask for healing for them. Be honored by everything said and done in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand and let's begin this evening by giving thanks to our God. Oh 
Turning 
your word tells us to do in the book of Hebrews, you say, invite us to come boldly into your throne room, to the throne of grace. And when we come in, you ask us for the purpose to receive your mercy and your grace in good times and times of need. So God, we run to you this evening. Whatever season of life we're in, we run to you and we know that you are Lord. And as we've declared through this song, our hope is placed in you. And our faith is placed in you. Knowing that you are our God and you are a stronger God. You are a mightier God than anything we face. And we are grateful people because of the goodness that you've given to us each and every day. So we thank you for allowing us to worship in your presence this evening. As we turn our attention to your word, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach us this evening. And may we not only learn your word, but may we go out of this place and put it into practice and be doers of the word as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you find your way over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, as we finish our study in this pastoral epistle, 2 Timothy, pick out next week, uh, we're going to be in Titus. Titus is going to get broken up into two weeks. We're going to do Titus, and then we're going to have, on the 22nd, we're not meeting. So that's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and so we're going we're gonna to encourage you to make your pumpkin pies and your turkeys and all of that stuff and get ready to minister to your family on, on Thanksgiving with that. And then we'll be back the following week to finish up Titus, and then we'll be in Philemon and continue on, and then Hebrews and so on. I asked Rachel to adjust our journey through the Bible that I started that should have only taken me seven years, but... Well, we started in 2015, and we're not done yet. But that's okay. We're, we're working through it. Also, I want to encourage you guys, if you can make it to the Wednesday morning Bible study, to the guys. We, we had a really good study this morning, and we'll be picking up in Revelation chapter 4 um, coming up. And then if you're not plugged into a life group, please get plugged in. That's where you can really do some good inner body ministry, some good studies, and there's some really good teaching that's going on. With that, but tonight we're going to pick up here in, in Second Timothy, and Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. To kind of give you the background, Timothy was more or less spiritually adopted by Paul, brought out to a place where he would raise him up. And what Timothy didn't know, but Paul was planning on, as God was working in his life, was Paul was training his replacement. Paul was, was training up Timothy to take over for him, and it took a number of years, and he trusted him, and he would give him a little bit, a little bit more. And, and so Timothy was in Ephesus, and he was fighting these, these beasts of Ephesus, as Paul would say, these anti, anti, really anti-Christ. They were, they were apostates, and they were false teachers and such, and so it was, Timothy was in the midst of spiritual battle. Now, Paul is writing this letter from Rome, and he's, he's pretty much done, as we're going to see tonight. 
that he is in this jail cell and, and it's just not looking good for him. He knows that his days are numbered within that. So these are kind of his last words to his protege, the one that's going to be taken over. And, and his biggest concern for Timothy is this. And the biggest threat to Timothy was the spiritual battle. We all are in spiritual warfare. If you haven't figured it out, you are. If you are a Christian in the world today, you are in the midst of spiritual battles and spiritual warfares. It would be a scary thing if God was able to remove um, what we, the blinders that we see and actually look into the spirit realm and see all of the things that are going on. I'm glad I don't get to see it. It would freak me out. But we can see the effects of the spiritual battle. We can see the effects of spiritual battle because it comes in the form of spiritual attacks through people, situations, and circumstances. Everything that's going on in Israel today is part of the spiritual battles against God's own son, Israel. It's part of God's master plan and his agenda in the redemption of the world. And Satan doesn't like it, so he's trying to take him out. The same thing's happening to Timothy in Ephesus. Paul spent more time in Ephesus than he did anywhere else. He sat and he, and he taught for many years in the hall of Tyrrhenius. And then he left and he warned the Ephesian elders in Miletus and he said, Look it, when I go, grievous wolves are going to come out from without. But the ones that are really going to be bad are the ones that come up from within. And then things got sideways. He sends Timothy back to try to square him up in 1 Timothy. And, and now he's writing to him in 2 Timothy. And he wants him to understand that you are in a spiritual battle. And so he speaks to him as a soldier that is in this battle. He reminds Timothy of his calling. And he warns him not to forget his mission. And don't trust deserters of the faith. Stay on mission. One of, the, one of the things that challenges us is when we get into these spiritual battles and life gets hard, we want to quit. Or we lose sight of the mission. We find out, we say, no, nah, it's just too hard. I, I can't do this anymore. Or, not only forgetting on mission, but, but we start trusting in the wrong people. And these wrong people are deserters of the faith. And if you trust in a deserter of the faith, they take you away. And, and, and so you shouldn't trust into a deserter of the faith. And Paul is going to lay out some of the vices. So, so one of the things is, well, how do I know somebody is a deserter of the faith? How do I know that they're abandoning the faith or they're a false prophet? So Paul gives Timothy these warnings. And keep in mind, Paul has one, one mission. What is Paul really fighting for? Is he fighting for a mega church in Ephesus? Is he fighting for name recognition? Or some kind of a, a business model? Paul is fighting for every soul in his span of control. In Ephesus and all of these, he's fighting for the individual souls. And for Timothy, he's fighting for the souls that are in Ephesus. And he can't be there because he's in a jail. So he says, Timothy, you take my place. You fight these beasts. You stand watch. And, Timothy, know this. God's got your back. 
God is there with you, fighting. And so, as this battle has been brought to the church of Ephesus, it's under siege. And Timothy is given this list of behaviors, things that he needs to defend against. And I think it's important because as we look at this list tonight here in First Tim- or 2 Timothy 3, we're going to recognize some of these things as actually being relevant in our world today and even within our churches. And so we see here in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 9, we see these attacks, a characterization of the apostates that are here. He says this in 3.1, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus's and Jambres' follies was also there. Not a place I want to live. When we look at this list, it's horrible. Notice what he says, though, as he, as he enters into this transition. He just got through telling them, Timothy, to, to really fight this battle. But he says, look, in these last days, there's going to be a moral and ethical collapse of society that's going to impact the church. Question. Do we have a moral and ethical impact of society that, or uh, collapse of society that's impacting the church today? Absolutely, we do. If you don't recognize that, you got blinders. You're living on an island someplace. Because when we look at this char- these character traits, this is stuff that was happening in the world, but now it is happening even within the church and authenticated in the church. And we have to stand firm because this is, this is the last days. When you hear the term last days, it, it, it really speaks of the end times just before Jesus' return. Within this, it's the eschatological term that covers the time from the church beginning to the time of Jesus' second coming. That term last days is anywhere that's within that time frame. Do we know how many days are in the last days? No. If you knew how many days were in the last days, would it change how you live? Most probably. You go, yeah, I get, Jesus isn't going to come back for another 2,000 years. I can do whatever I want. And there are some people that live that way, don't they? And, and they just eat, drink, and they carry on, and they party like crazy because, ah, you know, it's going to be a long time from now. One of the things that we discussed in our men's study this morning was the four different views of the rapture of the church. One of the views is called a post-tribulation rapture. Well, basically, the church has to go through the, the tribulation period, and then they're taken out just before Jesus, Jesus returns. It's kind of a wonky kind of theory, and, and in that, that you have to suffer the wrath of God for 
for most of the tribulation period, and then, and then you get taken up into the air and you have to make a U-turn and come back down. But one of the problems with a post-tribulation view is this. Post-tribulation proponents do not believe in the imminent return of Jesus, and therefore they reject all of the, the early teachings of the church that Jesus can come back at any moment within that. When we understand what last days in, we truly are in the last days. And it isn't necessarily a, a chronological number that we can put our finger on, but it is a type. It shows us that, that within this, there is going to be a deterioration of society that's going to usher in the second coming of Jesus. This moral, this spiritual decay. And it's going to be stressful times. Notice what it says. Realize that in the last days... Difficult times will come. Stressful times. Stressful times in the church. The reality is, as the days become more evil, there is more stress within the church, the true church. Why? Why is there more stress in the true church when the days become evil? Because the church has to be salt and light and has to stand out against evil and they become a bigger target. They, they become this, this place of persecution. The church has to live countercultural to the vices that are part of humanity. And we should. But the problem is, so many times people, they get tired of the battle and they say, well, let's just go along to get along. Is that a solution? No, not at all. These vices of humanity should never be adopted by the church, nor by any Christ follower as normal behavior. Can you think of, in your mind, people that, that as we'll go through this list, that are practicing sin as normal behavior and naming the name of Christ? There are people that are doing that within this. They're saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm doing this, this, and this, and this. And it's like, no. It should not be normal behavior. We cannot normalize sin. We cannot normalize these vices that we're going to read about. Because when we normalize these conditions, we've given ourselves over to the enemy within this. We, we have to understand that living countercultural is difficult. The, the, the word that's used here, kalepo, literally means to cause trouble or hardship or violence within the human condition. True Christians are going to be persecuted. If you're going to stand up for Christ, you will be persecuted. You'll be persecuted by the world. You'll be persecuted by your employers. You'll be persecuted by your own family when you stand up for the righteousness of God. And these last days, there is going to be a wickedness and unfaithfulness that is unprecedented within this. Father will turn against son, mother against daughter, as Jesus tells us, within this. And, and it's going to be horrible, and they're going to normalize these things. Paul gives Timothy a command. He says this, avoid these types of people within this. Now, why does he say avoid these types of people? These types of people are people that are naming the name of Christ and doing these things. He's not saying avoid the unregenerated but he's saying, avoid the people that say that they're Christians and do these things. And there's a distinction. 
He earlier in his letter to the church of Corinth, he said, look, I'm not telling you not to hang out or not to not to connect with the unbeliever because you need to to share the gospel with them. But when you are when you are affirming the the so-called believer that is practicing these things, you're actually condoning their sin. You're normalizing it within these things. So he says to him, he says, avoid that is a, it's an imperative. It's a command. It's not a choice. It's like, well, if you feel like it, maybe you shouldn't hang around these guys. No, he says, don't. Don't normalize their behavior. Why? Because their, their sin infiltrates the church and corrupts the moral fabric of the church. And it's very dangerous when the moral fabric of the church is corrupted. How many people do you know, especially pastors that have fallen from grace and lost their position as being able to teach in the pulpit and such things? They do so because they connect themselves with the sin and they normalize it within their life. So Paul gives this list. In the last days, difficult times. And here he goes through this list. First of all, it's interesting here. He says, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Now, we look at this, lovers of self, lovers of money, and he goes through this whole list, but we're going to break it down. What is the one thing that, that, that creates an apostate? So this is somebody who names the name of Christ, who walks away from God and normalizes sin in their life. The number one thing, the first thing that happens, they love themselves more than they love God. Apostasy takes place when you love anything more than God. What is the first command? First command of the Ten Commandments. What is it? It is no gods. No other gods. There is only one God. So, so Paul says, for men will be lovers of self and lovers of money within this. And later on at the end of this, down at, at the end of this list, he says, and they'll be lovers of pleasure. Well, let's think about this. Lover of self, lover of money, lover of pleasure. When we think about the core of sin, when Eve fell into sin, she took the apple and she said what? Or, it looks good. And it'll make one wise. And I desired it. And I took it. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life, the lust of the flesh. These are all things that are the basis of sin. Paul says the apostate is the one that is the lover of self, the lover of things, and the lover of pleasure, or in other words, the flesh. Self-love, love of possessions, and loving my flesh. That's what's going to draw you away. All these other traits are attributes that fall under those three categories within this. And, it, and it's very, very dangerous when a person loves, uh, when a person's love for God is replaced for the love of self, they become an idolater. They're an idol worshiper. And, they, and, and it's from that loving of these other things that all of these vices flow. In 1 John 2.15, he says this, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, note, the love of the Father is where? Not in Him. Not in Him. 
And you could probably mark everybody that would at one point in time name the name of Christ and walked away. You can probably walk or uh, mark them as falling in love with one of those three categories. The love of self, the love of possessions, or, or the love of pleasure. So what ends up happening to the lover of self? The lover of self, according to this list, becomes boastful and arrogant. I love myself. So what am I going to do? I'm going to tell you all about all the good things about myself. I'm always going to be right. I am the best thing that has ever happened to you. Is that right? No. Boastful. Arrogant. Which results in abusive speech. The lover of self will be boastful and arrogant and will abuse other people with their words. Do you know people that do that? Yes. Because they love themselves. And, as the text says here, which I think is interesting, they're disobedient to their parents. And you say, well, that's just teenagers. (laughs) Is it? No. When do you stop honoring your parents? When you move out of the house and get your own place? No. The biblical model of honor is to show respect at whatever age and stage that they're in. How do we know it was a problem in Ephesus? Well, we know because, because the, the church had to set up a whole group of, of deacons to be able to take care of them. They weren't taking care of the widows. They weren't taking care of the strangers, for sure. And they were killing their parents. 1 Timothy 1.9 says this, Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless, rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinner, for the unholy and the profane, and for those who, note, kill their fathers and mothers and murderers. They kill their fathers and mothers. There are some epics in history, and we think life is bad now, but there's some epics in history that, that are so horrible, we, we don't have a clue. On, on how bad it could have been. But can you imagine Paul having to write to Timothy and say, this was normalized in that culture to be able to do that? They don't honor their father and their mother. They don't, they, they're boastful, they're proud. What does that look like in our culture today? I don't have time for my mom and dad, so I'm going to ship them off someplace into a, into a home and I'm never going to go visit them. Does that happen today in our, in our world? Sure, I can name about three different places in our community where that's taking place. Where, pe- where people are sitting in, in, a, in a home, but their kids never come and visit them. You know, as, as I, I serve in a hospital and some of these different things, and you see that, where, where they're there. What ends up happening, and the, the essence is this, is I am so into myself, I am ungrateful for anything that my parents have ever done. Our Western culture has gotten really bad about that. One of the, one of the beauties about some of the Near Eastern culture is they will have multi-generations all living together to honor them, to take care of them. And I think it is the right thing to do. But Paul says, Timothy, these are, these are the self-lovers that are even ungrateful for the very ones that took care of them. Loving of self is unloving, as he says, to others, especially towards other, these family members. 
And they don't even reconcile relationships. <clears throat> to be unloving, you get to this place, and apostate is one that, that is unloving towards other people and doesn't want to recognize anyone. They're malicious gossips without self-control. They're brutal in their speech towards other people. And they've lost what should be natural affection towards other people within this. We, we look at what he says, these, these unholy, unloving people towards one another. I watch some of these you know, law enforcement shows, and they, the, you follow the, the law enforcement, the cops, out on these things. What comes out of people's mouths towards each other is, is so spiteful and, and, and so unloving within this, that not even the natural affection should be there. Malicious gossips, what they say in order to destroy another person within this. Do words hurt? Absolutely. Absolutely. I can tell you about a 13-year-old girl that hung herself because she was bullied and she died as a result of that in our own town. I can tell you about many other young people, mostly girls, that are bullied by the words of some of these other young people that are at the point of wanting to take their life. This is the times that we've become. Something that should be so unnatural to say is coming out of their mouth. And Paul is saying to Timothy, it's coming out of the mouths of people that supposedly are part of the church. Their, their speech is not controlled. It's brutal towards one another. What should be a natural affection towards other people or, or parents to kids or kids to parents. Some of the things I hear parents say to their kids. Horrible. May it never be from anyone that attends this fellowship. Your speech behind the closed doors in your house should be wholesome and uplifting. But within that, Paul says to Timothy, you've got to fight against these things. One of the ones that is full, so full of self-love, a commentator put it this way, they are hostile that never admit fault and never forgive or never seek truce. That's the unloving person. They are hostile. All of the words come out of their mouth that is hostile. They never, ever admit fault, and they never seek a truce. They never own their stuff. Paul says you've got to fight against that. This lover of self. Who else is this lover of self? The lover of self doesn't love good, only loves evil. They live in the dark. They never live in the light. They, they would rather... Enjoy evil rather than good. The lover of self is, is blinded by self because he loves pleasure more than he loves God within this. Christians betraying other Christians. Falling into sin without even a thought. And they're swollen and they're conceited with their own self-love. As a member and a part of the body of Christ, you are here to serve the other, to love the other. You want to do a really cool study? Really cool study. Go through the New Testament and find all the passages that, that have the phrase, one another. Do a study on all the one another's. 
And, and it will challenge you. One of the other things that I think is that's part of this, that these people are loving pleasure more than they love God, is that these lovers of self are religious, but not godly within this. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, Paul tells Timothy they have a form of religion, but they're not godly. They're, they're holding to, verse 5, they, they hold to a form of godliness, though they have denied the power of this. Well, what does that look like? Well, in, in Timothy's day, what they had done is they had developed this type of religion or mythology, and they were trusting in that more. What does it look like in our day? Well, it looks like the religious person. So if you go up to a person and you say, do you know Jesus? Yeah. I'm a Christian. Okay, do you know Jesus? Yeah, I go to this church over here. Well, do you know Jesus? Yeah, I've been baptized. Do you know Jesus? Well, I'm holy, I'm devout, I give money on Sunday, and, and, and I, I don't do any bad things. Yeah, but do you know Jesus? I am the most religious person I know. Religious people die and go to hell. Only people that are regenerated by the blood of Jesus can enter in. Paul is saying, look at Timothy, there are people that are trusting in their man-made religion. They're devout in their religion as if their religion was making them holy. And there is a difference. The Ephesians had linked the visible expressions of religion as a means of being holy. So in other words, if they were to go and they were to go to temple or, and, and they would do something, or if they were to give their money, they, that, that was going to buy them holiness. When we think about it today, we have a thing called liturgy. It's a practice of worship. There's a lot of people that go to church on Sunday, and they might say their prayer, they might give their alms, they might carry a Bible. Though they never open it, but they'll carry their Bible. And they'll do these things, but they never, ever, ever grow in their relationship. They have a religion, but they deny the power of God that is transformative within this. True Christianity, Paul says to Timothy, is not based on your religiosity. True Christianity, by definition, is are you Christ-like? And you can only be Christ-like if you know Jesus within this. So, the self-lover or the sinful behavior denies the power of God. Why? Because they think because of their religious actions, they're going to get into heaven. Can work save you? You don't sound too convinced of that. Can work save you? No. Can coming to church every Sunday save you? No. No. And you can tithe, you can, you can go give money to the poor, you can, go to the, you can do all of these good works. But it's only Jesus that saves. And so that, that sinful behavior really denies the power of God because what does self-love say? Self-love says, I'm going to work my way into heaven. I'm going to do enough good works to get into heaven. Look at me, God. Look at how... God, you were pretty lucky to get me today. That's self-love. You know, God's up here going, ah, Horrible. So question, 
How is the power of God displayed? How is the power of God displayed through a believer? A submissive, obedient life that loves God with all his heart, soul, and mind, loves his neighbor as himself. Which is contrary to everything that that Paul told Timothy. He says, avoid these people. Avoid these people. This is a command. He, it, not a suggestion, it's a command. Second Thessalonians 3.6 says this, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother, note, who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Notice who the, Paul says to avoid. The unruly brother. What does that look like? It really looks like this. You're to avoid the brother that is marching out of step that everybody else is marching in. If the church is marching in step in unison, and the brother who says I'm marching with you is always marching out of step, avoid that one. Why? Because he's marching to his own beat. Avoid that one within that. You avoid these ones that are practicing these lifestyles. As I said, it doesn't, it doesn't apply to the unbelievers, just the apostates that are walking away. One of the dangers that he says is you avoid these people. Why? Because they have an intent. What is their intent? Verse 6. For among them are those who enter in the households and, and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. So, what does he say? He says, these are the ones that prey on weak women. Now, before I get all the hate emails about, okay, Paul is such a male chauvinist. Why is he picking on women? Couldn't there be weak men that would do that? Yes, but here's the problem. What was happening, and it ties in with the younger widows that he mentioned earlier that didn't have spiritual leadership in the home but we're looking to be led spiritually. And these guys were coming in as the spiritual leaders and saying, hey, look, we've got some new truth for you. Does that happen today? Absolutely. How many of these widows have been at home watching these, these knucklehead televangelists who tell them and, play, and pray on them and say, hey, look it. You know, come help me and, and do this and whatever. And they're, and they're robbing these widows and these women that are there that are, that are falling prey to this. And it happens all the time. And they market the weak. And so as Paul was saying, and that was one of the things he said earlier with these younger widows, get married. Why? So you'll have a spiritual leader within this. He says these foolish or idle women... That these young windows that maybe are immature. One of the difficulties is this. Is, is it their fault? No, they're eager to learn. He says they're eager to learn. I know a lot of people are eager to learn. And they will grab whatever you give them, but they don't have anybody that's mature or a spiritual leader in their home to say, hey, look, at, let's check this out. And so they were feeding them all of this garbage that is there. All of the garbage. And they were, they were being suckered in to the false teachings that were going on in Ephesus. 
And so what happens is they were preying on them as they were eager to learn, easily manipulated, shallow in their faith. They were speaking truth. I'm sorry, they were speaking lies, never truth. Here's the problem. You start chasing these lies, and, and they, they, never, they never evolve into something that is substantial. They always have to come up with a new truth. These were students of false teachers. They were, as he says, ever learning, but never really learning. And that sounds a little squirrely. Why would you always be learning, but never really learning? Because you're learning lies and never really learning the truth. Lies do not mature a person. You cannot become spiritually mature by learning lies. You can only become spiritually mature by learning the truth. And then you grow in the faith and knowledge of Jesus. But if you're sitting under, or if you're following somebody that's teaching lies, you will always remain in a state of confusion. And they will always come up with another lie to keep you hooked within this. And so these false teachers, they were bringing their, their own source of, they, of information, and it wasn't true knowledge of God, and they weren't growing. And, and I thought, well, what does that look like? This is what it looks like, the professional college student. Well, what are you doing? Well, I, I'm in college. Uh, well, how many degrees you got? Well, I don't know. I'm in college. Well, how old are you? Well, I'm 54. You're still in college. Have you learned anything? No, I'm still learning. What are you doing with your life? I don't know. I'm still at school. Ever learning. Never coming to the knowledge. Go to school, get your degree, and get to work. But these professional students, you know, they're, they're going to school, getting degrees, but never becoming wise... Because they never apply the knowledge. Well, the problem with these guys is when you fall into the, this state of deception, it never comes into something that's substantial within this. Have you ever met people that have degrees that are really dumb? Yep. I know a few within that. And, and, and so... He's saying, look, at this is what they're doing. This is the hook within this. Notice how he says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected and regarding the, the faith, but they will not make further progress for their folly. So he brings out this example of Janus and Jambres. Now, who's Janus and Jambres? They're not a rock band of Paul's day, I can tell you that. You know, I, I look at these names and I always think of like Jan and Dean or something, you know. From, but we look at this, Janice and Jambres, the only way we have their name, it's under Jewish tradition. You're not going to find their names in the Bible. But under Jewish tradition, and also in the writings of the Qumran, we find their names and they were two of the magicians that were there with Moses when he was addressing Pharaoh. If you remember, Moses went to Pharaoh, let my people go. I don't think so. Let my people go. I'm going to prove that God's God. And so they would, Moses would do different things. And, and, one of the, one of, and so what happened is the magicians, so Pharaoh saw it. And he said, well, why don't you give my magicians and see if that power is really true. So they would try to copy it. And so just as they, they were opposing Yahweh and they were seducing Pharaoh and the magical arts, 
Paul is saying Janice and Jambres is just like these guys seducing these, these people that are following after these lies here in Ephesus using magic and false teachings that are there. And there were these self-proclaimed cult leaders that were there. Now, to show you how foolish it is, this is dumb. Like, this is really, really dumb. Exodus chapter 8, verse 18 says this, And the magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there was gnats on every man and beast. And the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he didn't listen to them as the Lord had said. And you say, well, Carrie, why is that dumb? Here's the dumb thing. Moses would bring forth gnats, or he'd bring forth the plague of, of blood, or, or snakes, or whatever the case would be. And these dumb magicians would go, hey, we can do that too. I know there's a plague of gnats. Let's make the plague of gnats even bigger. I know there's blood. Let's make more blood. I know there's frogs. Let's make more frogs. That is dumb. If you really want to prove something out, make the gnats go away. Make the frogs go away. But Satan can only duplicate. He can't create within this. These false teachers were taking the Word of God and they were manipulating, but they were looking at such a way that they could manipulate the people. Church, please hear me clearly. If someone tells you something that is a bit wonky, weird, check it out in with Scripture. And, and I don't care who they say they are. The church of what's happening now with a following of 5,000 people or whatever it is. If it's false, it's false. And you can have a whole building full of people believing a lie. Don't be one of those people. Don't be easily manipulated with this. Well, how do we do that? Verses 10 to 17. How do we fight this spiritual battle? You know how to fight it? Know the Word of God. Look at verses 10 to 17. Now you followed my teaching. Now he's speaking specifically to Timothy. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and suffering, such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all of the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors who proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things which you have learned, become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom and leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that, there's that hint clause, purpose clause, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. How do you know the false from the true? How do you recognize these people? One, look at their behavior. But two, know the Word of God. Paul sets an example for Timothy on, on how to fight these false teachers. And Paul fought using the Word of God. He was a student of the Word of God, and he brought out the Word of God in his teaching. 
there are so many secular vices that are there, and we need to avoid those. But how do you know that they're wrong? How do you know that this vice is wrong? Because you learn it's wrong from God's Word. And the judgment that comes with it, where God says, don't do this within this. And so Paul says to Timothy, I've set for you a spiritual example to follow. One, remain loyal to the Word of God. Remain loyal. Look at what he says. You followed in my teaching. You want to make sure that you don't stray. That you don't become one of these apostates. That you don't wander from the faith. Study the Word of God. Now we are fortunate here because we have a lot of really good Bible teachers in our home groups, our small groups, and here on Sunday and all of that. And we use the Word of God. But as you go out on vacation and you go visit things or you talk with people, what's one of the questions that you, you're going to ask them or maybe you're going to look at in, in visiting a church? Do they use the Bible? Do they teach from the Bible? Are they picking up the Bible and working through the Bible? Do you know the Word of God well enough to know what they're saying and can you agree with them because you know the Word of God for that? You've got to study the Word of God. Paul says to Timothy... He's basically saying, I'm dying, I'm going away. You want to be successful? Follow my teaching. Which leads me to the next thing. You should be in a place where you're being taught, and you should be teaching somebody else. You want to know how to grow in the Word of God? Don't be just a listener. Become a teacher. You say, well, I don't know enough. You got God's Word, you got the Holy Spirit. You can teach. Well, I'm scared. What if I say the wrong thing? Give them the Word of God. I won't be wrong. Don't give them your opinion. Give them the Word of God. Sit under a good teacher. Become a teacher. One of the greatest ways that you can grow in your faith is become a teacher. Start with children. Start teaching Sunday school. Start teaching the next generation. Pastor Mike could sure use some people helping him teach in youth ministry. I know Shelby on Sunday morning has a need for Sunday school teachers. I know Juanas has a need for people to come and sit with the Word of God. Anywhere between 60 to 70 kids meet every Wednesday night. And if you say, Pastor Kerry, I'm not going to come on Wednesday nights. I'm just going to watch it online because I'm going to help out in Awanas. I'm going to say, Lord bless you, go. Go help out. Be there. Why? Because those kids need the Word of God. They need to hear the Word of God and they need the adults to do that. And I know a number of teachers that are doing this that didn't think they can do it. But it forces them to actually learn the lesson before they could give the lesson. Learning the Word of God. Paul says this, follow my teachings. And again, Paul's not being arrogant, but he's holding up the Word of God as the source. And there is a time when the mentor is done being the mentor, and he's passing it off to others so that they can do that. Timothy, you become the mentor for others. You know my teaching, and, and so now you can continue. How, and what does teaching do? He says, know my teaching and my conduct. Teaching always results in action, conduct. It transforms the life. The more you know the Word of God, the more your conduct is going to be shaped by the Word of God within that. 
And then it gives you mission. Whereas Paul would say, that's my purpose. So now that you know the Word of God, it shapes your conduct, which gives you mission. And he says, and you know my faith. Follow in my faith. Or literally, my faithfulness and my long-suffering. In order to be a good soldier, you've got to follow your leader. Paul often used himself in an example. 1 Corinthians 4, 16-17 says this, Therefore I exhort you to be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of all my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in the church. Paul says, Timothy, I'm going to teach you. You imitate me. Now, I've duplicated myself. Now you go, because I can't go. That's what discipleship is. Duplicate yourself. Teach others. Paul trusted in the Lord. Timothy, you're going to be a soldier. You're going to need to trust in the Lord. Did Paul trust in the Lord when he was beaten by, by staffs and rods? Stoned? Shipwrecked? Thrown into prison? Did he trust in the Lord in all of those things? And did Timothy watch that? The answer is absolutely yes. You watch somebody that's faithful. Learn from them so that you can learn to be faithful and to be able to practice this and to trust. The, the idea that, and it's an interesting word, it's called macrothrumea. The word macrothrumea has this, this state of emotional calm. Paul was emotionally calm when he was persecuted. Now, everyone's going to go through stuff in their life. But have you ever met somebody that was like going through hell and they were just like steady Eddie? How do you get there? That's macro through maya. It's the ability to remain calm in the midst of chaos. How do you get there? Spiritual maturity. Word of God. Knowing the Word of God. And, and so Paul says, look, my, my persecutions, my sufferings, all of these things, and you know them in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Paul's enemies attacking him, beating him. His teaching was starting riots within this. And he says, in all of these things, note, the Lord rescued me. In all of these things, the Lord rescued me. That's powerful. Could you say that? Could you say that in, these, in, the, in the worst day of my life, I'm remaining calm and the Lord's rescuing me? You can and you should because that's a truth. That God will rescue you through the trial. Up until now, Paul has been delivered from every difficulty and persecution that he's been in. Paul is going to be rescued by the Lord in his death. When he, when he goes to be with him. All those that, and he says this, all those that live godly lives are going to be persecuted. That's, that's the condition. Why? Because the world is your enemy. Paul knew that, that while the Lord was keeping him, his time was running out. Whatever you're going through, whatever difficulty, whatever spiritual battle that is happening, and you say, well, it's just circumstances. No. It's circumstances that Satan is trying to use to create spiritual warfare against you. Whatever it is, be at peace. 
because the Lord will rescue you through it. You just have to be at peace with it. Say, God, you got this. Paul goes on with him and with these persecutions and sufferings and all of these things that were happening within him. And he says, but in verse 13, there's going to be evil men and impostors that are going to proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In other words, it's going to get worse within this. But the true Christians are going to oppose these false teachers. Philippians 1.29 says this, For it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. You will suffer when you stand for the name of the Lord within this. But God will take you through this. And you fight through the false teachers. How do you do that? In 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, is, it is probably one of the most powerful passages in all of the, the letters to Timothy. It is, it is something that we should stand on. Notice what he says. This is how you're going to stand. This is how you're going to fight within this. Take hold of how you've been brought up, the sacred scriptures that, that are going to make you firm. All scripture is inspired. That word inspired is a powerful word because it means God breathed. All scripture. How much? What do you think all means in Greek? You're all Greek scholars. Good job. All means all. Panta. All. All Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, not written by human will. God produced the Scriptures. Man reproduced them for our writings within this, wrote them down, and it's all profitable for the godly one so that the godly one would be adequate and equipped for every good work. We have to be people that are Bible-centered. Because God says, I want you to be Bible-centered. That means you need to get into the Word of God and understand, as a soldier, it is profitable for every good work. How is it profitable? What are the good works? Well, one work is teaching. God's Word, God breathed His Word given to you to teach. So, are you teaching? Well, no, not really. Okay. God's Word is profitable for reproof. What does that mean? It, it means this confrontation. To be able to confront. Are you using the Word of God to confront or are you using your own opinion? Use the Word of God. That way you know that it's right. It's for correction. The Word of God needs to be used to... to, to correct us, and for training in righteousness within this. So, as Timothy and I got to thinking about how Paul wrote this in such a way. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 is the foundation for proclamation ministry. Why is it the foundation for proclamation ministry? It is the foundation for proclamation ministry because if the Word of God is not present... God is not going to make a person righteous. You have to use the Word of God. In the proclamation ministry, Timothy's primary tool lies in building up people. Well, how do you build up people? You begin with the Word of God. You start there. And then, giving the Word of God, then you confront the part that needs to be changed. 
then you correct the part that needs to be, that has been recognized, and then you equip the person how to live a right life. And it's a process. So you always start with what God says within this. Orthodoxy is the proper use of doctrine. Orthopraxy is the proper behavior and, and that comes at it. So many times we try to do orthopraxy or proper behavior, but we don't know why. We just do it. When you get into a situation, use the Word of God. Don't use your opinion. Go to the Word of God. If you spend any time counseling with me, you're going to get the Word of God first. And you should with any counselor within that. Because it allows us to equip people for the good work within this. Paul tells Timothy, hold on to the Word of God. Then he continues on. Remember, chapter numbers and letters or or, or numbers and, and divisions are not sacred. It's a continuing statement. So he says, based on the fact that all Scripture is inspired, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearance and judgment, preach the Word of God, which I just talked about, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction within this. So what does he say here? He says, always be ready or stand watch. Timothy, stand watch. Have the Word of God. When, when I first got saved and, and, and came to faith, one of the things, we were so excited about the Word of God. And I was in my young adults group. And we went everywhere with the Bible. You can do that now. It's on your phone. But I remember we would go out to, a, there was a coffee shop that was in um, Downey, California. And so at, we'd do Bible study on Monday nights. And then we'd all go out for pie and coffee because we were going to go talk about the Bible study and, and hang out and just kind of be friends. We'd all take, and we'd go with our Bibles. And you got a bunch of like 18 to, to 25-year-olds that are all sitting there having pie and coffee, and we got all our Bibles laid out, and we're still talking about the Bible study. And our Bibles were with us everywhere, carrying it with us everywhere. And we were witnessing to waitresses, and we were giving them tracts, and, you know, and, and being kind and helping bust the tables and just, just all of those different things. Because we were in that place where we were always ready to give the Word of God. As a soldier, Timothy, stand at the ready. I solemnly charge you, or I'm making you... In fact, Timothy, I want you to take an oath. You're a soldier. I want you to take an oath. Be ready. If you were in the Lord's army today, would you be ready to take an oath? Yes, Lord. I will be ready. At the call. To go out. I take an oath. To be ready. To be ready for ministry, to be a witness, to preach the ministry, to bring the fruit of salvation to people. Why? Because Paul believed in the imminent return. One of the beautiful things that is amazing to me, and when we go to Israel, we always see this that's there, and even with the army today, they have a reserve army. And everywhere you go, everybody's got a gun. It is amazing. There's moms pushing a shopping cart with the baby in the cart, and she's locked and loaded. She's got her gun hanging, hanging right there. They're all on reserve. Why? Because they're always at the ready. They're always standing watch. Why? Because they have to. Why do they have to? Because they believe that at any time there could be an imminent threat within that. Timothy, I solemnly charge you under oath, be ready... 
Why? Because Jesus could come back in any moment. This, this imminent return. If Jesus was coming back at midnight tonight, if somehow you knew it, if he was coming back midnight tonight, who do you know would die or be left behind or whatever the case may be and spend eternity in hell that you haven't witnessed to? We should always be ready. Take advantage of these opportunities and, and be ready to be able to share. Paul says that Jesus is coming as the eschatological judge. He's coming at the end times judge. Acts 10.42 says this, And he ordered us to preach to the people solemnly, testify this is the one who's appointed us as a judge of the living and dead. In Jesus' second coming, he's going to judge those that are alive when he comes, and he's going to bring out those that died. Everyone will stand in judgment. Everyone will stand before the Lord within this. The living, the dead, we all have to give an account. We will all be separated those that are in Christ, those that are outside of Christ, and that will take place. We need to be in that place where we understand that, that there is a judgment coming. 1 Corinthians 4.5 says this, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the things hidden and darkness, disclose the motives of men's heart, and then each man's praise will come to him before God. What does he say? Five imperatives. Preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, correct, and exhort. Within this. Be ready. We need to be able to... And so he repeats the same things he said in chapter 3. Be ready to preach in the last days. But what if they don't listen to me? Remember what I said earlier. What if, what if I'm not a good teacher? God doesn't say you have to be a good teacher to be successful. He just says that you have to be faithful to God's Word. He warns Timothy, he says, In last days, verse 3, there will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, when they accumulate to themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship to the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, when, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. So what does he say? Timothy, I'm leaving. Fight. Be diligent and preach. Correct rebuke, and exhort. Even if they don't want to listen, because as the last days go, they won't. Are we in those times today, these last days, where people don't want to listen to sound doctrine? Absolutely. If you tell them the truth of God's Word, people don't want to listen. I think it was this morning, we were, we were talking at the men's study, and... and I forget who it was, but one of the, one of the guys was telling me he was he went to go witness to this gentleman and and ask him about Jesus and and he says, well, I'm a Catholic, and so he decided to bail out on that to to be able to back off and he and he didn't want to hear about faith or any of such things, but he was a good Catholic within that, and that's a challenge. 
The other thing is, why will they not want to hear? Because it's not what they want to hear. He says, in the last days, people are going to have itching ears or tickling ears. Tickling ears. What does that mean? I want the teaching that's going to make me feel good. Is that, the, is, is that what's being taught? Is that the popular, the social gospel? I want the doctrine that aligns with my pleasure. Is that happening today? Sure. People are taking the Word of God and they're manipulating and erasing parts of it, making it so it fits their program and their pleasure within that. In the last days, they're going to want doctrines that, that, that give them approval according to their flesh. Paul says they're going to even multiply teachers to do that. And I got to think about that today. They're going to multiply teachers that tell them what they want to hear. Why? Why do we want to multiply teachers that teach false doctrine that tell us what we want to hear? Because it authenticates my position. The more people that are start saying it, the mu- it must be true. Right? It, it, and so if that becomes more of the mainstream idea, then that must be true. And those that are you holding the truth, you're too narrow-minded. You're just not with it. It's not relevant for today. Does that happen today? Sure. So we have churches today, so-called evangelical churches, that are teaching things such as homosexuality is normal. That gender can be whatever you feel like. That it is okay to pursue the lust of the flesh and these desires that you want. It is okay to be able to, to participate in, in all of these other forms of ungodliness. And they teach it from a pulpit. And if they get enough people to say it, it must be true. Did it happen earlier in in our lifetime? Sure. Can you think of the 80s and 90s and the health and wealth doctrines? Very popular. If you believe it, if you say it enough, if you blab it and grab it and all this other junk, it must be true. No. These these, These are itching ears that's there. Paul says again... That time's going to come when they're not going to want to hear sound doctrine. Does that mean we stop giving sound doctrine? No. No. We just got to understand it's not going to be popular. He says, but you be sober in all of these things. Steadfast. And then he finishes with his last words. I'm being poured out as a drink offering within this. That comes from Numbers 15.5. It was part of a, a sacrifice of worship. He says, You'll prepare wine for the drink offering and one-fourth of the hen and burnt offering in the sacrifice. What would happen is the animal sacrifice and the drink offering would be poured out on the altar as an act of worship. And Paul says, I'm dying. I'm giving up my life. This is my act of worship. I'm done. Timothy, you're up. Timothy, it's up to you. There's going to come a day, who knows when that is, when the Lord's going to call me home. And I'll be done. But Lord willing, there is a group of people that I'm discipling that will take up the mantle for me. There'll come a day when I'm not able to do certain things. Youth ministry was one of those. That's why Pastor Mike is here. To be able to do that. Children's ministry is one of those. That's why my daughter is now doing children's ministry. 
Could I do it? Yeah. But I need somebody younger. We need to raise up the next generation. We need to disciple the next generation. Who are you discipling? Who is your Timothy? There will come a time when the Lord calls you home. And when He calls you home, He'll give you that crown, that wreath. Just like in the games. He says, you've run your race. You're finished. Here it is. Meanwhile, there's still other people that are in the race behind you that still have their race. So fight the good fight. The last thing that Paul does is he just does some final housekeeping in verses 9 to 22 where he he does these short bullet points. But I want you to hear Paul's heart as we read through this. And I'll ask you a question at the end. He says this. This is the ending of his letter. And it's not very Pauline is how he ends it. He says, Make every effort to come to me soon. Talking to Timothy. For Demas, having loved this present world, Demas was a guy that was on his first missions trip, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful for my service. But Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Corpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposes our teaching. And at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and all the Gentiles might hear and I, will, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me to safety in His heavenly king, kingdom. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Achilla and the household of, of Onesiris. Erastus remained in Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick in Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. And the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be to you. Was Paul feeling a little bit abandoned at this point in time in this prison? Yes, he was. Did he give up? No. Even in the prison, he said, I continued the work. Did he name out some names? Alexander, yeah, he got kicked out of the church. and He was causing a lot of problems for him. Demas, first missionary trip, abandoned him within this. John Mark is mentioned. John Mark. This is John Mark who abandoned Paul in his first missionary trip. Tried to make the second one. Paul said, no. He says, send him. He's been a good help to me. Paul was not alone, but he was alone. There'll be times in your life when you feel alone, but you're not alone. There'll be people there. All you have to do is ask for them to come join you and empower the next person to do the work. We're going to go ahead and just close tonight with this and close in prayer. You'll pray with me. God, I thank you for the ability to be in this place, to be able to study your word, to to learn from Timothy in these great lessons. Lord, I would ask that much like Paul, we would finish our race well. We would raise up a Timothy to take the mantle forward and continue the work when we can no longer do that. Bring us to Timothy.
And Father, if we're in that case of being a Timothy, bring us a Paul that would pour their life into us, that would prepare us for the good work. And may we be more like Timothy, a good soldier, standing guard and fighting these spiritual battles, knowing that you are with us and you will rescue us from every evil. We praise you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Have a blessed week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.